At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, It becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting Geraldine Jandro to the show today. A licensed psychotherapist since 1995, Geraldine's a playful, soul-provoking life coach who believes that one of the keys to happiness is being able to laugh at yourself. She's the author of Jungle Gene, the biography of her mentor, Gene Leidloff, who traveled into the pristine regions of the Venezuelan rainforest back in the 1950s and subsequently wrote a seminal book, The Continuum Concept, which became a child-rearing classic. In her work with clients, Geraldine assists adults who do not have a fully enriched infancy and childhood, most likely most of us, by the way, to see and feel the very real impact of missing experiences. The insight, understanding, and self-knowledge gained gives them new freedom and courage to live a fully actualized life. Geraldine shows people how to transmogrify their everyday experience by leaning into the joy that is our natural state. She loves to share the story of how she learned to turn life's many challenges into sources of energy rather than energy-sucking problems that put the kibosh on her life source. Geraldine has been deeply influenced by a decades-long fascination with Littlewood's Law of Miracles, which states that any individual can expect to experience an outrageous event every 30 days. She's a black belt martial artist, salad aficionado, and renowned hair chameleon. Her favorite brain hack is jumping out of an airplane. It's a great pleasure that I welcome Geraldine to the show. Thank you, Geraldine. I don't think anybody's ever read my bio with so much conviction. That was great. Thank you. You know what I love about your bio and looking at it? Salad aficionado. (laughs) (laughs) You should see my salads. Oh, my God. I love it because you you use such amazing words to to describe your your, your background and yourself. And I think that and and also what I love about your, your just before we even started. Your energy is very awesome, but I love the fact that you you focus on laughter and enjoyment and looking at the positive side of things, because I think that that is so critical and pivotal. And I want to ask you, in your background, what is it that gave you such a positive point of view over the years? 
Well, I'm always working on it because I'm not always in the most upbeat. I can also, you know, everything has two sides and I can also be very morose, but I (laughs) am very good at kind of what I do when I go there is I turn up the volume on it. I make it as big as I can. And then this trauma, that's part of transmogrification. So for those in the audience who don't know what that is, look up Calvin and Hobbes. The Hobbes, it comes from a cartoon. Anyway, you know, really, truly uh, breaking my neck in heavy surf when I was 29, I had a near-death experience. And at the end of that, I mean, it's a very long story. I won't go into all the details, but I was rescued. I was dragged out on the surf, completely paralyzed. And then there was this divine intervention, which is where my fascination with miracles come from. I'd be frozen from the neck down because I crushed C3 and fractured C2 and C4. Like, go figure. Hiked five miles back to my car. That's like crazy. But I'd been training in martial arts. And for many years, we worked with chi. We did, I did a keto, hop keto, and Zen meditation. We worked with chi. And for me, it was only conceptual until I had to hike five miles with a broken neck. And I really believe that I walked out of there. I was at the end of Bear Valley Trail in Point Reyes. I believe I walked out in my chi body. The, the orthopedist, when he looked at my x-ray the next day, he said, you can't possibly be walking. So, you know, that's a miracle. But afterwards, so in the final moments, and this ties back to Jean Lebeloff because it's part of what planted the seed in me that I later looked for her. When all was said and done, it's a fascinating story. It's actually traveled the world and come back to me. Like I've had people tell me there was this woman and I'm like, well, that was me. But anyway, at the very end of it, I felt absolutely surrounded as though the entire universe was an ocean of love pressing in on me. And I felt like completely safe, absolutely loved and at home in my own skin. And it was the first thought when I felt this, I'm like laying there, just feeling this like blessed energy. And and, and the words came, meet the beloved. And then, and then I, and then I heard, it wasn't hearing a voice that, that I heard the voice say, meet the beloved. And the second, second thing was me going, wow, this is, this is what I truly am. Like this beloved. And the very next thought was, why haven't I ever felt this way before? <laughs> like, all right, what's up with that? If this is who I am, why haven't I felt this? And that eventually led me to Jean. That's a long answer to your question, but oh. I'll, finish, I'll finish with this. After that happened, so I had surgery. You can see my lovely scar. I was in a halo traction device for three months, but I felt completely free and everything was happy. Some people said I had like, there was no Geraldine on the property. It was just the doing of things. And some people will say I was, I was in a state of Samadhi. I studied yoga after that quite a while. I always say I was initiated by the Pacific ocean rather than a guru. The thing is, I don't think I was like suddenly enlightened or any of that. I think my body was absolutely flooded with the biochemistry of gratitude because I could walk. I wasn't going to spend my life in a wheelchair. And I really feel that's where things became. That's really a life shaping experience. Like, and there is a beautiful story um, in Jungle Gene about how the Aboriginals lived and they didn't take all the stuff that we think is like horrible, awful. 
they celebrate it. They have fun with it. So that is also one of the beautiful things about the book is it actually gives you a glimpse into a society that doesn't make everything a problem. Here's, I want to unpack what you just said, because I love what you just shared. You shared a near-death experience that you encountered and had the courage to do. I appreciate that. I know it's not, you know, like the first question you probably get asked during these kind of interviews. My show's a little different. And uh, I have had near-death experiences. Um, I had cancer and overcame some of my own personal obstacles. But the one thing I'll share with you is from my NDE, as I call it, or visitation dreams I've had with my grandfather, I had unconditional love that came to me and washed over me like a wave. Yes. And words don't describe what that love feels like, but I think you're kind of describing a similar experience. And, and I find that so amazing to have someone else share that because all this time that I've had my own personal experiences the last five years like this, I haven't talked to anyone else who can describe what that unconditional love feels like in the sense of where it's comforting. I think that's what you did. I think you were protected spiritually when you hurt yourself and got to be able to hurt yourself like that and then walk, you know, mark, hike five miles, you said, you, yeah. you hike five miles was, after yeah, I was on Kellum beach out by arch rock at the you end by yourself? I, no I was with somebody thank god because she had lifeguard training and she, she saved she saved my life and then but you, believe, you saved your life too <laughs> yeah you, but yeah. Here's, here's a little detail and again it's a really long story but there was this moment and this is what I think was the divine intervention she saw, she realized I was paralyzed and she was like oh man she's gonna be mad at me for rescuing her and <laughs> And she, she had this thought, I need to make her move or she'll never move again. And she stood up and stood over my paralyzed body and screamed at me, crawl, Gigi, crawl, you know, like with all the force of her being. And I feel like that is the kind of thing that creates miracles is when we are so entirely focused and so intentional and passionate about something happening. It's like the word made flesh and her word hit my tailbone. Now I'm paralyzed. And I just came out of the ocean going through the all of evolution, thinking I was the first amphibian to crawl out of the sea. So she says this, oh no, that the, the, the crawling happened after she said the words. I literally started like, she said, you were squirming like a fishy thing. So I'm like squirming up the beach and then I go into creeping and crawling. And then next thing I'm up on all fours, just like an infant does when it comes out of the womb. Five miles. Like I walk maybe six to seven miles when I go a couple of times a week just for fun to get out of the house with the whole COVID thing. I had to get myself out and walk yeah. five miles on an injured back, paralyzed. That's pretty crazy. I mean, it was insane, but I, again, wow. miraculous. You were able to be transmogrified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm superhuman. I'm very, I, 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 I think you're going to have a new, another book come out someday that says miracles happen. And you're going to get in depth about that experience. I, wouldn't actually, have I have written all about this in a novel that happened. I've been working on for, God, I'm embarrassed to say 20 years, but it has. It yeah. It's been published in a couple anthologies where I told my story, you will. Uh, but I like the idea of writing it in fiction because, I mean, I've created these bizarre characters okay. it's actually called Autobiography of a Yogini. You probably have never heard. Of, have you heard of Autobiography of a Yogi? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. It's one of the like next to the Bible. It's the most it, it as spiritual books. My entire generation, all of the baby boomers read that book. It's it's Yogananda's story. Okay. And he's one of the people that brought yoga to the States. So it's, it's a dense book, but um, anyway, I own the URL. So that's a, a autobiography of a yogini, which is the female version of a yogi. So anyway, 
I ramble. It does happen. No, but listen, I love what you're sharing because the information you're sharing is so relevant to what we're talking about, miracles. And, and I just, you know, we're going to get into being now and we're going to get into your book. But before we did that, the fact that you opened with that is just, to me, a blessing because I think that that's sharing with my audience that everyday people have miracles and miracles don't happen like on, on top of a well, They happen in the middle of, I guess, where you were, <laughs> the middle of nature, but they don't happen on top of a mountain every day. It usually happens right in front of us in plain sight. And that's what I think you represent in your story. Yeah. And, and I love that Littlewood's Law. You know, that's based on the theory of very large numbers. Tell us about Littlewood Slaw, because I was looking at that. I'm sure my audience wants to know what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's like the idea that you look for them, you know, like you're on a miracle hunt all the time. Like, when is it going to happen? And the other thing that I think you as the social psychic, I haven't actually asked you about why that title, yeah, but the whole thing about uh, coincidences, like I think about something and they call me. This has happened countless times. And the more you recognize it and say, you know, like, Caught that one. <laughs> I call it, instead of calling it a coincidence, which just means coincide, I call it a coinky dink. I, and that's the playful part. It's like, okay, bring it on, bring it on. It's, it's just an attitude to go through life with. I, I love it. I love it. I'll tell you for one second. No one's ever asked me why I call myself the social psychic on my show. So I'm going to share that with you in under a, a, a short answer. Basically, I, I get premonition. And one of my premonition dreams in 2012, when I was working as a lawyer in Texas doing hurricane Ike work, I'm a lawyer in five states. And I had a dream when I came back to Tampa early, because I'm in Tampa now in my condo, but I came back early to surprise all my college friends from Tampa. And that happened to be the one Friday night that everyone else had something going on. So I came back six hours early, you know, bought an upgrade on my ticket, flew back early to surprise my friends and go out and have a great weekend. And I got stuck sitting on my couch watching the news. So I had, a, I had, I went for a walk. I, I figured I'd see everybody the next day. I fell asleep on the couch. And I had a premonition dream. And then my premonition was very vivid. And you know what vivid stuff's like because you've had a spiritual experience. I was in like a green iguana type of place. And I walked in and there was packed with people. And this is four years before I realized I'd be an open psychic, by the way. So I knew I was intuitive, but I didn't know how intuitive or where I'd be. And I was terrified about coming out of the psychic closet because of my lawyer job, because I worked in Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Florida, and New Jersey. So basically, long story short, in my dream, I'm there and a woman has these uh, long feather earrings, like the dream catcher earrings. Yeah. And I walk, I walk into this crowded packed place in 2012. And I asked her around like, who's here? Who's here? And she turns slightly and her earring drops. I remember seeing this and she said, Oh, Jason Zook, the social psychics here. He's with it either. He, he's, he's here. They're, they're doing something where they're doing a promotion. He's giving out t-shirts and he's here for a show. So I was like, what the heck? Okay. So I wake up and I'm like, Jason Zook, the social psychic here for my show. I don't have a show. I'm, I'm intuitive, but I'm not psychic. My grandfather's last name is Zukovich. He's my inspiration. He's kind of led me through a lot. So I call myself Jason Zuk, the social psychic because of that dream. And I've always felt all these years that someday I'll either wind up on YouTube or on my own TV show someday. But that's just where I come from. Beautiful, beautiful. Weird, it's weird how you can sometimes get premonition. Uh, that was a dream, not just a permanent. It was an actual it, dream. It was a dream, but I get visitation dreams from my grandfather often, and I've gotten prophetic dreams and visions and all that kind of stuff in advance. So I've had dreams. That, I predicted the election six months before it happened on my Instagram and picked all five states that switched. The only thing I got wrong was I said be a blue landslide. Of course, it wasn't a landslide. It was a trickle, and it came to a, a tie. So I had that one wrong, but the Democrats did win the Congress, the Senate, and the House, and I got that all right. So and I picked Arizona and Georgia and Michigan and the Midwest. And stuff. But so, yeah, that's just me in a nutshell. I want to focus this interview on you. So here's my question. 
you have a book, Jungle Gene. And I want to ask you about the continuum concept and ask you what prompted you to write Jungle Gene. Well, so I'll just, I'll, I'll reverse them and talk about the continuum concept first. So Jean lived in the Venezuelan rainforest with, uh, she called them Stone Age Indians, but that's politically incorrect. So we call them indigenous people. But these people basically were still in the Stone Age. They, they had never seen civilized humans. So you can imagine this tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, they thought she was like freak. She was a Paris model. But to them, they were like, what is this monster? But she, she saw homo sapiens, human beings, who were, and this is the piece about the fully enriched infancy and childhood, they were treated the way humans evolved to be treated. So there she says she called it a biological evolutionary continuum of innate expectations. Now, the best way to explain that is so a human infant is born totally premature. They cannot take themselves. They're not like a horse who comes out of its mother and is up on all four legs that afternoon trotting around the corral. We have to be held or cared for. We, we're helpless, absolutely helpless when we're born. And that's because when we went upright, an upright mammal, its pelvis shrinks. So you got to push that puppy out of there while it's still premature or you're going to die. So the women who gave birth to premature babies were the ones that survived. So think about a marsupial, a kangaroo. They have a pouch. Their baby, when it's still little, crawls down and into the pouch, and that's where they gestate, is in the pouch. We don't have a pouch, but we have opposable thumbs, and we've learned tools. So we grab a skin or whatever kind of cloth or whatever we got, and we create a sling. So, But human beings, starting with, I think it was Queen Victoria invented the pram, and you put the baby in a stroller, and you or you put them in a bassinet or you let them cry themselves to sleep bad idea so really what jean identified she calls it this biological continuum that's determined by evolution and a human being actually expects innately to be held to be nurtured to be loved to feel safe to know it has its place and one of the deepest neurotic fixations for people in this in our world is that they don't feel a sense of belonging. And it's because they weren't in their right place where they belonged on their mother's hip or being hand off, handed off to little brother, you know, a kid. Always in, in Bali, they have a ceremony when the child is six months old and touches its feet to the ground for the first time. So Bali is Bali is one of the continuum intact cultures. So all that said, the way I found Jean, I'm not a mom. I never wanted to be a mom. I was childless by choice. I knew I'd screw them up. So I opted out. But I was working in graduate school. I was working at Women's Alcoholism Center in San Francisco. And this was a reunification program. So our clients were women whose children had been removed from the home and they'd lost custody because of their alcoholic behavior. Most of them were crack addicted moms. This was in the 70s. I just dated myself. But they, the children were special needs children. And yet this parenting manual prohibited, it was like 
breaking the rules to lay down with your kid. Like he's trying to take a nap. He's crying. Let him cry himself to sleep. So that your response is exactly mine. I was like, I'm like, what? Why? Why would you do that? No sense. There was one little boy. I'll never forget. He would cling to his mother's shoulder like a koala bear. You know, he was just always there and it was his most safest place. But she had to put him in the crib at night and let him cry himself to sleep. I'm like, that ain't right. How do you do that? I, I can't do that. If I was around a baby ignore, and crying, I'd have to, I'd have to respond. You ignore to your, see, you have your, your innate, your innate. So Jean says that the baby has signals. Okay. The signal, I'm not getting what I need is the tears and the parents who haven't been had the disruption of social conditioning that says, let them cry themselves to sleep has a matching response, which is what you just identified. I've got to go to that baby. Of course you do. It's a sign of distress. It's not getting something it needs. It feels unsafe. It's not sure where mommy and daddy are. And then there's this satisfied thing when the baby finds, see, fell asleep. You know, like, okay, let them cry it out. They'll fall asleep. They don't fall asleep. They pass out. And, and, and they're again, exhausted emotionally, I would think too, think, right? Okay. Again, yes. It, Think about it evolutionarily speaking. We're in the bush or wherever the hell we are. The first thing the baby do, does if he's left behind is signal, ah, you know, you left me. And then the next best thing from evolution is to pass out because then you're not alerting the predators. Anyway, this is this gives you a good sense of what the continuum is. And so I found Jean because after this experience of like my, my maternal instinct was hopping mad. It was like, I am not okay with this. I can't enforce this parenting manual. For I have a hard time and I'm not a parent. I have two babe. I have two birds. I'm a bird daddy. That's my life. <laughs> you know? If my one bird like acts like it's, um, she's uncomfortable. I switch out water. You know, I'll take a break from my work day, go check on them. After this interview, I'm going to the other room to go. Check. Like I couldn't even imagine. How do you know a bird's unhappy? You just have a connection. First off, I'm intuitive. So of course oh, I know. That's right. Okay. Okay. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Not- I'll say this. I couldn't imagine being connected and bonding to somebody in your life and having that kind of a dynamic. Like, okay. yeah. what do you do? Like, that's just, that's so foreign to me. I know. Yeah. And, but people do it and they do it out of convenience because after all, I've got a job to do or whatever. And carry the, people think it's going to be really horrible, awful to carry the baby around all the time. You'd be surprised when they're carried around, they're relaxed all the time. They just go with the flow. It becomes for the indigenous people. It is not a separate activity from life. A, a woman just ties the baby on, on her back, whatever, and goes about her business. It keeps it as part of the life. Has your baby there with it's, you all the time? Yeah, yeah, it's totally integrated. So anyway, I was not happy about what I was being required to do as a job, and I left. I read a book by Rianne Eisler. She wrote a book called The Chalice and the Blade that is all about ancient cooperative societies that were matrilineal. They worshipped the female goddesses. The little, you know, the little chubby belly goddess figurines were found in the archaeological digs, no man hanging on a cross, just this chubby little baby, this little woman. And so I was, I'd read that and I'm like, I need to, I need to find a time machine and go back and see what their parenting manual looked like. And a girlfriend of mine said, oh, you don't need a time machine. Just read this book. And she handed me Jean Lee Luff's book. And that, that was, I was probably, I was just out of graduate school. So it must've been 
early 90s. And that I tracked her down, became her assistant, hung out with her for 15 years. She was a difficult person. That's a sub, that's a subplot in the book. My relationship. What did she like? What was it like to work with her? Well, she was absolutely brilliant. She's New York, Manhattan socialite, okay, who ran off to Europe, meets this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Italian count, go figure, and uh, runs off with him to the jungle. It wasn't a romantic relationship. She, in fact, she thought he was arrogant, which she is a bit, call that a projection. But um, then she went back, she went back twice. She went back one, a second expedition with the Italians, and then she led three herself. So she was very, so I'll illustrate it. When we, the first day we met for lunch, I had tracked her down and went to a talk she gave in San Francisco and chatted her up. And then she invited me to meet her for lunch in Sausalito. I'm like, you know, of course I went. And she tells me at some point during our lunch together, she says um, she'd been friends with Gloria Steinem. Do you know who Gloria Steinem is? Yeah, there's synchronicity. Okay, okay. Wait out a minute. She was the leader of the, you know, she kind of led the charge women's liberation movement with a revolution from within. And she was the one person Jean felt was her intellectual equal. Jean had a genius level intelligence. She got kicked out of college because, and, and she used to say that was the end of the interference because she saw academics as limiting someone's point of view rather than expanding it. So uh, anyway, long story short, as you can see, I know how to ramble. Um, <laughs> she, she said to me, she said, pussycat. She always called me either pussycat or darling. I don't think she knew my name. She said, there's something I always do that pushes people away. And I don't know what it is. Promise me you won't go away. Just tell me, just tell me what it is. Well, the work I do individually with people is called the blind spot work because she had a complete blind spot around this behavior pattern that always pushed people away. And when I tried to tell her, it would, it would become even more powerful. So the way it showed up was she would just be, there's no nicer word for it. She would just be mean. So she would go like, I would say, okay, here's a good example. We had lunch one day and she, I ordered a taco salad and they give you tortilla chips. And I was eating the tortilla chips and she, she stopped that crunching. Stop crunching. I'm like, I had OCD or something. I'm like, they're tortilla chips. And I, actually, I didn't even react that way. I'm just like, what? Like, I just kind of, I would collapse, you know, because I haven't discovered, I hadn't discovered my blind spot, which is about, um, it's always a strategy. It's a strategy we develop in childhood to handle stressful situations. And because it works when we're little and we have no memory of three to five, because we haven't established what they call object constancy in psychology, that strategy worked. We survived, we got through it. We lived to, you know, to celebrate another day. So next time there's stress, we do the same thing. And then the same thing. And eventually brick by brick, we build this defensive structure that often gets in the way of relationships with other people. So anyway, I kind of collapsed. I went to the bathroom to kind of take a few deep breaths and look at myself in the mirror. And I said, okay, here's a good opportunity to tell her what she does that pushes people away. So I said, I went back to the table and I said, Jean, you know. Break glass now, right? <laughs> in case of emergency, break that's glass. The, that's the thing you do. And she goes, oh, you're just too sensitive. 
So there's no actual ability to see it because it's a blind spot. So you keep defending yourself the very way you've already always defended yourself. Now, a lot of her biography explains why she was like that. She had a horrific upbringing. Mm. And in the final, in part three, part one, she goes to the jungle. There's a lot about her, her young life. Part two, she, she's back in New York. She hangs out with, with you know, the, the beat generation intellectual literati of the day. She goes down to the Martin Luther King uh, March. She's a journalist at this point. And then, uh, and then she goes back for her final trip to the jungle. That's all part two. And then part three is the period when she became this childbearing expert and she lectured around the world and her book came out, got translated into 20 languages. So she was hosted all around the world. And in there, I come back into the story and on her deathbed, because I went through some work to help me see my blind spot and you can't work with other people unless you know yours and really understand the dynamic. I was able to lead her to the, to the recognition of the thing that she does that actually hurts people. And it was the moment she, she, she actually, she died of self-starvation. She didn't want to live anymore. She attempted suicide twice. The first time, the first time I told her she had to, she she took a whole bottle of Vicodin, which won't kill you. It'll just trash your liver. So she suffered from bad depression. No, she was not depressed. She was lonely. She did not have a partner. She was an old spinster. She had an Abyssinian cat named Tulip. You mean with mental health issues? No, it wasn't. She was totally rational. In fact, the second time she was hospitalized, she got to talk to the magistrate of Marin who said, we can't hold her. You know, there's this thing called 24 hour hold and then you can get involuntarily committed if you're a danger to yourself or others. He said, we can't hold her. She's rational. She's not depressed. Send her home with hospice care. So she could no longer get out of bed because her knees were wiped out. Kaiser couldn't figure out how to fix them. And she said, life isn't worth living bedpan to bedpan. Yeah. So she just wanted out. She'd had, she's like, I had a good run. How many people get to contribute as much as I did? I had a fulfilling life. I'm ready to go. So she did stop eating. And shortly after that, in the first probably five or 10 days, she looked at me one day. So this is, this is the moment that she started to see where her blind spot was. Cause she looked at me at one point and she said, you be my Boswell. Yeah. I'd never heard of Boswell. He wrote a biography of some famous person. She was a Jeopardy savant. I didn't have this little factoid. So I looked at her and I said, who's Boswell? And she looked at me deadpan and said, you really are an idiot, aren't you? And instead of collapsing and reacting and going upstairs and get some cookies or something, I just was right there with her. And I went, ouch. And I said, that's the thing you do. And for the first time ever in my 15 years as her friend, she said, I'm sorry. So the thing that happens with people as they approach death is these, these defensives start to crumble. I saw it in my father. Now, by the way, when you said that, I got a spiritual connection there. Like I felt the intensity of that. I'm sorry. Coming from her. I just think it's the most powerful. I'm sorry. You'll ever receive from somebody. Yes. On this planet, right? Because of 
who she is and what she went through in her own life. And you know what? That gives me a good, a good question to follow up with you on is yes. you could be this amazing individual with your, your book written in 20 languages and have, I mean, I know who she is before our interview. I remember when I was in psychology class in college reading about her. Oh, really? I got, I got my psychology degree in, in undergrad. So I, I can just tell you that you're connected to an amazing person. But what this interview shows today is even amazing people are human beings who have to work through their own issues and emotional yeah. stuff and spiritual stuff. And, you know, I think what you did right for her is you stuck by her. Yeah. And you were honest with her. Yeah. And to me, but that's she- the fun. I made that promise the day we met. And there was a period when I went away for a couple years, uh, but I'll never forget. My man would, we'd go down, we'd drive down Sausalito and he'd go, how's the, how's the houseboat lady? <laughs> you know? And so it, there was every I houseboat lady, houseboat lady. She lived on a houseboat in Sausalito. So uh, I, there was never a time when I knew I was gone for good. There were just times when I needed to repair from the damage she would do our relationship. Here's another example. I did an anthology. I did several anthologies. It's how I cut my teeth in publishing. And um, one was called The Marriage of Sex and Spirit. So I went to San Francisco to do a book talk. It was my first ever book talk. And I thought I was being very conservative. I wore a short skirt with fishnets, but I wore a turtleneck. You know, most of my wardrobe is like cleavage. Well, so I'm being, I'm being very, and all black, I'm, I'm very city, you know, I'm in my city garb instead of my Marin County flowy stuff. (laughs) And afterwards I met her at the depot. We always met at the depot and I walk up and she looks at me and she goes, you look like a tart. (laughs) Like, thank you. You know, but until that Boswell moment, I was never able to actually just stay with her. So it was after that, it was after that tart comment that I, I basically, I was like, I can't deal with this woman. Oh no, it was another incident that's actually in the book. So I'm baiting you to read the book. That's okay. I, I want our audience to read the book. They need yeah. to the book to read. I have yeah. a question for you. Do you yeah. think she just, she had her own defensive mechanisms up because she had a hard time getting close to people because she was terrified of, of intimacy and, and being vulnerable to people based on her childhood? Yeah, her childhood was horrible. Her she had an abusive horrible. childhood, right, or something. Yeah, not abusive, just Herb? neglect, just neglect. Her mother did not not want to be. Her mother was an artist, and she was self interested, probably narcissistic. Mm. And uh, so that, but at birth, her mother rejected her at birth. So Jeannie, she, one of the things she used to say is that what a person wants most is to feel welcome and worthy. Of course. So the, foundation of her psychology and we know so much more now because of neuroscience uh there's a beautiful um series on trauma now they're doing all kinds of trauma work and as it turns out the brain develops it was a book by oprah i actually just read it's called uh what happened to you so instead of saying to people what's wrong with you like they're in prison she's like what happened to you because it all tracks back to early experiences, which actually influence brain development. Like, wow. So the message of the continuum concept in the message of jungle gene is that if we want to optimize our human nature, we do well to pay attention to the, to evolution's requirements for appropriate treatment. I always say you can't argue with evolution. Not at all. You can, you can try, but you're going to lose only a hundred percent of the time. So, you know, it's just this change of reference. It's like, oh my goodness. 
and there's a lot of effort that, for parents to make the shift, particularly if they were raised the way most of us were. I mean, did you find from your experiences working with her that you, was it hard for you to, to kind of take the public image of her and reconcile it with the private person that you knew personally? You know, it wasn't. I knew that I had to write the book. I mean, I'm a professional writer. I've written a whole bunch of books as a ghost writer. Okay. And, and, and um, I knew I had to present an authentic picture of her because it's all of that background is why she could see what she could see. She went to find answers to her own questions. Now there's a, there's a chapter in this book called um, the glade where she had a transcendent experience as a child in the woods of Maine when she was at summer camp. And it was that experience that put a seed in her, like nature is where I feel most at home. So that was part of her fascination with the jungle. She didn't go to try and resolve her childhood experiences. She went because she was really uncomfortable in her skin. She never felt at home or welcome except when she was nature in nature. That was the allure of the jungle. She just so happened to stumble upon a society that the Iquana, the Iquana are the tribe that she lived with for the longest periods of time. They are known as uh, finished people among South Americans. They were considered finished, not like you're finished, quite the opposite. Like you're finished in that you're complete. You've, you've got the, the polish, you know, you're like the ultimate. And they did have a way of being that was joy was their natural state. Yes, they would experience pain. Yes, they would go through what they went through, but they didn't hold on to it. Their feelings came and went. They had feelings. They didn't have emotions and they didn't have moods. They had feelings because feelings naturally resolve themselves if you don't resist them or identify with them, which is what we do. We resist them and then we get emotions and then we identify with them and then we get moods. I want to write a book called Marry Your Feelings divorce your moods, you know, like, like it's, we really haven't seen, there's a beautiful passage in here. If you'll indulge yeah, me, please, please. let me see. Uh, actually, let me pull up the PDF. That's the easier way to find it. I appreciate you sharing your passage with our audience. I mean, this is yeah. so, while you're doing that, tell our audience about where they should find you and where they should find this book. I know I'm going to put uh, it. In well, the, it's the book is called jungle gene. And that is the type, that is the URL, the, website is junglegene.com. If you go there, you will put in your email address and you will, I will send you an audio mini, I call it a mini audio book of <laughs> chapter one. So I read it. Uh, it's very beautifully produced. I have to say a friend of mine did the production on it and, um, and then you'll be in touch with me. You can email me directly through that. You'll get my emails and email me directly. I also have gerilynjandro.com, but it's a little hard to spell. So, uh, you know, uh, oh, I'll put it in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. So that's another way you can reach me. I do both uh, coaching, individual and group coaching around this blind spot phenomenon. And I also work with authors. I have the author's chrysalis, which is a six month mastermind where I mentor people and help them finish their books. Amazing. So those are the things that I do. So let me read you this. Now this goes to 
There's another passage that really demonstrates the joy thing and the laugh at yourself thing that is really one of my one of my favorite things. But this one is what I was just talking about. The um, oh, where did it go? I just saw it. Oh, this one is about how they don't hold on to feelings. So, and particularly men are really, you know, you guys get conditioned to not have feelings and certainly not express it or don't let anybody see. So, so hard, the, right? So hard they, for somebody not to express how they feel. Yes. I mean. Yes. So here, let's see. Um, also confronted was the American notion that a man's emotions, this is, this is in a chapter called The Unlearning Continued. So she had to examine so many of the things she'd been conditioned to believe by our civilized society. So uh, confronted was the American notion that a man's emotions are a sign of weakness that ought to be hidden, lest the feeling man lose the esteem of his peers. A boy in the civilized world will be taught this lesson in a myriad of ways long before he approaches manhood. But no such lesson or expectation is foisted upon a Yaquana boy. Repressing emotions does not become a cornerstone of his identity as a man. One day, a Yaquana boy of 10 years old came to see her, screaming loud enough for the entire village to hear. Jean knew the boy. She had observed him playing with the other boys for weeks. She thought of him as an utterly self-reliant and, like many of his peers, highly disciplined. Through her cloudy, supposedly civilized lens, the boy appeared to be a master of his emotions. She had no behavioral template for what began to unfold before her eyes that day. Here was a 10-year-old boy clinging to his mother, making a terrific fuss in front of the whole tribe. He had an abscessed tooth, but made no heroic effort to remain stoic or conceal his emotional reaction to intense physical pain. Nothing in the boy's past experience suggested he would suffer ridicule if other boys saw him in such a shaky state nor would he lose anyone's esteem for running to mommy for comfort. Quite the contrary, everyone completely understood. The other boys readily accepted his sudden withdrawal from their fearless ranks. A cluster of children, many of whom were the boys' playmates, hovered around while Jean extracted the tooth. They gave off none of the subtle signals modern boys would use to mock or shame the lad. His mother remained close, not overly concerned, just quietly available while Jean began the procedure. He blanched at the pain, she had no Novocaine, and let out a shrill wail when she finally worked the tooth free. She plugged the bleeding hole with gauze. It was over. Exhausted, the boy went straight to his hammock, not even turning to look at his mother. He felt no need to assess the reaction of his peers. An hour later, he approached Jean's hut. The color had returned to his cheeks. He said not a word, just played with some rocks nearby as if to let her know he was okay. Then he wandered off to rejoin the other boys. How powerful. I got goosebumps again. You gave me goosebumps. Uh, I have to say this. Two things, my take from it. One, you're just shattering stereotypes that men need to be stoic in our society, right? That men can't have emotions or run to their mother or share weakness or pain, that shattered them. That yeah. that excerpt to me shattered that preconceived notion that any male in our society can't be an emotional being. That's exactly right. And I appreciate you articulating it that way. I, I mean, what I say is these stories will shake up your head 
And have you, you don't, you can't forget something like that because it's such a powerful image. And it, it's a, I like that. It shatters your shatters. reality. It's like, whoa, that's completely different. Can I read you another one? Please do. Please do. You know what? I'm not rushing you in our interview. I, I am considering it a privilege to have you on my show. Okay. And I really love what you're sharing because as I said, I've been a fan of jeans for a while and what we're sharing with our audience right now, if we can reach anyone in, in the listenership of our audience and think, hey, you know what? You might be a male, you might be a fireman, a policeman, or any kind of male stereotype, but you know what? You can have your emotions and you don't have to be a stoic and you can, you can come to grips with your emotional makeup and be real and be authentic. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, they, we know that disease is in many ways related to emotional repression. So you're speaking to something that's really, really important and more and more being recognized. And guess what you're doing right now? You're offering a healing modality in my audience by showing them stuff that they can hopefully see from a different lens. You know, storytelling has always been the way we've most, you know, we've always learned from storytelling. Before there was writing, there was storytelling. And stories are really humans' best way to learn new things. So this um, this is on her first expedition. Uh, when they're first going toward the Sanama, the, the first, I think it was the first expedition, was it the second as well? She stayed with the Sanama tribe, which they were a little more, uh, I guess, more primitive or, I mean, they still practiced a certain, they were no longer cannibals, but they did, I won't tell you what they did with their dead, but it was, you know, it was very much in an honoring context. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't when you read it, that's in the book too. And how they did this. So um, one day without warning, the river halved in volume. They were surrounded by a dense growth of asparagus, ficus and philodendron. Enrico recognized this passage. He had traversed it before. And he began to describe the challenge that lay ahead in detail. We'll have to climb over the steep granite wall next to the Arapuchi Falls, he said. How steep, Jean asked. Quite, Enrico replied, avoiding her eyes. This is the passage you told me about? Beppe frowned nervously. This is the little fat Italian who funded the expedition, Beppe. Yes, Enrico replied. Then with a single slow nod of his head, this is the one. Still avoiding Jean's gaze, he went on. They place logs across the path of the canoe and haul it inch by inch. The sun is merciless. You could easily get heat stroke. He described the pain he'd experienced time and again when the canoe would slip into a crevice between boulders and pivot out of control, scraping his shins and ankles against the granite. Jean's face remained stoic. Beppe looked horrified. Fearing what lay ahead, the three of them spent several days bracing themselves for the hard work and pain that was sure to follow. They arrived at the waterfall full of dread and primed to suffer, already hating every moment of the portage. They started off grim-faced, dragging the canoe up the rocky slope. When the canoe swung sideways, the sheer weight of it would pin a member of the work party to a burning rock, while the others scrambled to move it off. A quarter of the way up, all ankles were bleeding. By way of begging off for a bit, Jean jumped ahead to photograph the scene. She climbed up 10 yards and perched high on a rock. From that vantage point, at a distance from the action, she noticed a curious fact. There before her was a group of men engaged in a single shared task. Two of them were tense, frowning, losing their tempers at everything and everyone, cursing in the distinctive way of Tuscan men. 
The tarpon guides, on the other hand, were having a fine time of it. They were laughing at the unwieldy canoe and making a game of the battle with gravity and rock. Between pushes, they shoved off their they showed off their scrapes and bruises. When once again the canoe would wobble forward, pin one, then another of them underneath it, they responded with amusement rather than upset. The fellow who was held barebacked against the scorching granite invariably laughed the loudest once he could breathe again. All the men were doing the same work. All were experiencing strain and pain. All were sweating in the blazing hot sun. There was no difference in their situations except one. Jean and the Italians had been conditioned by their culture to believe that such a combination of circumstances was at the very bottom of the scale of well-being. What's more, they were quite unaware they had a choice, any other option as to how they could experience that situation. The guides were equally unaware of their choice. These supposedly primitive people had also been conditioned to deal with their circumstances in a particular way. They knew what lay ahead, but hadn't spent the days before the trek wallowing in dread. Quite the contrary. They approached the portage in a perfectly merry mood. They seemed to revel in the camaraderie. Each forward move of the canoe was viewed as a victory, a cause for celebration. I mean, you want my take on that one? Yeah. Mindset makes a lot of difference. It's how, how we live our lives, right? Mindset. And it makes me think, of, I'm not going to switch away from this, but you can, I mean, how I phrase this, and this is what I'm going to say. You could be what's called prehistoric, but you have the evolutionary know-how to understand that if you have a positive mindset and if you approach a challenge with laughter and 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 excitement, like you know you're going to get past it, but it's not going to break you, you're probably have a much better time doing it than someone who's going to be negative Nancy, right? Complaining, screaming, cursing in Italian, whatever it is, because you know that 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 fits our reality right now. Yeah. With this 2020 and 2021 and the pandemic and everything we've been through, you can approach it from the negative point of view and hate having to wear a mask and hate having to be socially distant and hate this and hate that and be negative about this and negative about that. Or you could be like those guys. Yeah. You could approach it with a positive point of view and a, a positive mindset and embrace the challenges, but not let it break you. Yeah. You know, COVID was one huge silver lining for me. And that's not because I'm some, you know, Pollyanna. It actually, I mean, I usually have quite the active social life and travel a lot. And because of COVID, I stayed in one place. And this book is the result of COVID. I was also at my mother, my 90-year-old mother. I was at her house when lockdown happened. And I stayed. My brothers were like, yeah, it's probably not good for her to be that alone. Why don't you stay? I stayed with my mother for over a year. And that relationship completely transformed. Did it transmogrify? I love that word. (laughs) You know, it was really a profound experience. Who gets the opportunity to live with their mother when they're 90 years old? Like it was really very profound. And I'm very, very grateful for it. That doesn't mean I didn't grumble about the masks. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do, people. So why why add it? I mean, this is the thing about, I think it's one of my spiritual teachers says, you got 17 seconds to be negative. (laughs) So, you know, get it out of your system. But I I consistently catch myself when I'm complaining. You know, (laughs) we're just conditioned to it. The interesting thing is these, the indigenous people, they didn't have to think it through. They didn't have to change their mindset. That was what they were married, marinated in. 
we were marinated in a, you know, overly think, overthink everything, you know, rational mind more dominant than the intuitive mind. I mean, it's, and it's not a simple thing. It's not like there's a switch where you change your mindset. It does take a certain amount of discipline, but every time you do it, you'll see a shift and it's that shift. That's the reward that becomes the reward instead of the reward of being pissed off, which is a different kind of a different kind of circuitry. And thank God we've now discovered, I don't like the word neuroplasticity. <laughs> it's like, I don't know about that. My, my brain is not made out of a petroleum product. I prefer neurofluidity because there is a way that all of this can actually be changed, but it does take intention and focus. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. What has been the most, I mean, you have an amazing story yourself. I mean, just with what you've described and the experiences in your Jungle Gene book, it, it just sounds like it's an amazing read. I, I want to ask you this, looking at Jungle Gene, what was the hardest part of you getting this book out? Well, there was, okay, so after I got the Gloria Steinem endorsement, that was probably 2015, maybe 2016. At that point, I had a lot of momentum to publish it myself because I've been in the publishing world long enough to know that it's, you know, A, they take all the money yeah. and it takes forever and it doesn't really give you that much. But uh, I put the Gloria Steinem endorsement on Facebook and Simon & Schuster came to me. When, when does that happen? Why does it, when does when it's it meant to happen? When it's meant to happen, right? right. When yeah. the universe says it's meant to happen and here you are. Yeah. Well, here they came. However... It took them six months to say, thank you. No, thank you. That was a hard blow because I had put it on pause. I was certain when I met the publisher who, who reached out to me, she was a continuum mom. She had read the continuum concept when she was pregnant with her first child. And she said that she credited Jean's work with helping her heal her son who was born with a severe birth defect. So you know, I have tea with her in Ojai and I'm like, that's my publisher. timing, right? You just got to, my publisher. you know, six months later, dragging ass, like, oh, excuse me, you know, like okay. it's like they said she couldn't get it past her editorial board. And it's because Jean, what isn't a household name like Jane Goodall, you know, but a lot of people, you know, people I heard of her. You'd heard of her. I love that, that you like you read her book. I'm hoping that this will end up on some um, college. The thing about Jungle Gene, and I'll just say this. Um, the continuum concept was is a dense read. And in today's world, people are used to texting and and Twittering. And it, so it's like short sentences or you know, LOL, let people emojis. Jean's <laughs> the kind of writer should classic, classic, uh, brilliant literary talent back in the day. People, if you read, you read the continuum cuts, there are paragraph long sentences in there. We call them run on sentences, but if you read those sentences that it's like, Oh my God, this just unfolds. But her book is more a treatise on human nature. It's very philosophical in nature. This is an adventure story. It's, you know, it's a bang up good read. I have to tell you, I've written probably eight or 10 books from scratch and edited another 20 or 30 more. And I put my heart and soul into this and my best, it's my best work. And I'm a damn good writer to start with. That's your only work coming up. Yeah. yeah. So more. anyway, it's, um, 
that was the hardest thing was the rejection from um, Simon and Schuster. And at that point I got an agent. I had two different agents working with the book. We sold the Polish rights, but, uh, and by the time that year was up, I said, okay, I'll give it a year. Then I was in a health crisis. So it sat on the back burner for a couple of years. And so, so that, so Simon and Schuster was the hard part. And the other part was just not feeling inspired to get it out there. And then right around the beginning of COVID, a friend of mine who was a continuum dad and who had read an early draft, he said to me, why haven't you published that book? I'm like, okay, I'll take it off the burner and just throw it up on Amazon. Like, I know how to upload a book to Amazon. I'll just do it. And then I read it. And then I read it over 4th of July weekend. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. I have to do it justice. So I had a professional book designer. I got the interior design. I did an Indiegogo campaign to help me pay for all the marketing. And, and I'm very, very proud of it. It's available in paperback or hardback and Kindle. And, um, it went through two more rounds of editing and it's really, 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 really good. So yeah, I'm excited to have you read it. I am excited. I, I, I think what I love the most about your, your approach today is just the authenticity of what you you're sharing with us because everyone in the audience has been a child at one point, everyone in the audience has been a parent, uh, most of the ones listening that have kids. So you're picking a topic that deals with human behavior, human nature, and the core of that, how it starts, right? And how we approach things and how we should be looking at one another in society as adults. Yeah. Instead of looking at somebody saying, oh, okay, that person's having a bad day. You could say, well, what have you been through? Yeah. I'm going to do that next time I meet somebody. Like, let's say I go out to a, a restaurant when COVID slows down a little more and I'm out there with some friends and someone's being really snooty or upset. And I'll be like, what have you been through? what have you been through (laughs) yeah our conditioning is to say what's wrong with you but that's a good you know like oh wait a minute when you ask somebody what have you been through i mean i'm afraid to say some people yes yeah some people look at you like whoa that's the title of oprah's book i mentioned i love that book and it's called uh what happened to you i love that i love that beautiful it's a beautiful thing let me ask you this and we're running low on time but i mean this has been one of the (laughs) One of the most exciting interviews I've had in some time regarding human nature and behavior and spirituality. And I just want to ask you this, when you're looking at your book right now and you're looking at your history, your career, what is it within yourself that you find has helped you get through setbacks and challenges that you would share with our audience to inspire them? Like, for example, if someone has their own jungle gene book or if they have a goal that they haven't reached and they're sitting there and they're, and they're having health issues and they're frustrated and they're they're listening to us laugh with each other. Uh, what, what would you say to them? Well, uh, so whatever happens to us, no matter how bad it seems, I believe that there's a little miracle behind it. You know, like just keep going. The, the gold that's in the rock, this, you know, hard, ugly thing is it's in there and it will reveal itself if you just keep going. And I'll give you a good example. We tend to fall into self-blame. I still have those voices that are like, Geraldine. So the earlier cover of this book was a different photograph. It was a little slide. These came from slides. You probably don't remember slides. The little, yeah. I'm 45, so I'm dating myself. Oh, okay. So anyway, um, I lost it. And that the previous cover was 
chose by an art director who said, that's your cover. So I was very married to the idea that that would be the cover. And for two years, I beat myself up over it. And then when I got the first copy and saw how grainy it was because we didn't have the original photo, I was like, oh no, that's just horrible. So I called the man who owns all of Jean's effects and intellectual property rights. And he said, oh, I have, I have some more of those slides. I'll dig them out. And he's got like boxes and boxes of her belongings in his garage, but he found this whole bank of slides. And all of a sudden I had 17 beautiful photos to choose from. So two years of beating myself up there, the, the miracle behind it is I got a much better cover. The other one was very meditative. They're all kind of quiet and sitting there. And if you look very closely, you could see her anteater in her lap, Clovis, who actually went on Johnny Carson with her. And I was very attached to Clovis. I'm like, I want that. But you couldn't see him unless I pointed out his little ear. So in this one, you can see how happy they are. Wow. And they're, they're looking, Clovis is over here. He's out of the frame. <laughs> But this photo tells such a story. Such a story, because it's her you know, with the- with, And with, she's with like her. waving, so it's got, you know, it's got uh, motion in it. It's very kinesthetic. Everybody's smiling. So that's what I mean. I mean, that's a small example. Oh, but that's a beautiful example, because you yeah. showed something that you stressed about personally, trying to make it happen for your book. And for two years, you were lost with it. And then the miracle unearthed itself. And you're sitting there like, it felt like it came from the sky, right? It just came directly to be presented. Yeah. Yeah. And the other like extreme example. So I broke my neck 28. I was a martial artist and a bartender. And it, had I not broken my neck, I don't think I ever would have gone to graduate school. You know, so that was like the thing that pushed me to do the thing I really wanted to do. I mean, sometimes we just need to be interrupted like a pattern interrupt. Yes. Things happen. Just two weeks ago, I'm in Northern California and I had what I thought was a summer long house sit. Well, the people had to come up early because his mother died. So I was going to Oregon for a book release party. I got to stay for a week and a half and really got to know these people. So like, you think it's a tragedy, hang on, wait and see. Sometimes there's a miracle right behind it. So in answer oh, wow. to your question, that's, that's what I have to say about that. I, I I love this. This is the best. I really enjoyed this uh, sharing with our audience. I think they're going to really enjoy our interview. And I think I, I just want to thank you for coming on. I want to ask you this. If you're a spirit animal, which spirit animal would you be and why? That's a good one. I think <laughs> I would be a panther or a leopard. You know, I'm I'm into the big cats. I have a, I have I am I have a very feline side to me. OK, so that's Excellent. my. Do I, was, I get, oh, do I get a psychic reading? Yeah, you want? I'll be happy what, to. I, what did I, you think? What did you think when you asked that question? What would you have guessed? I, I would have gotten you as a panther type, but I'm going to tell you this. I think right now your energy is showing me somebody who's like just getting ready to do a lot more than what you've done in the last five to 10 years of your life. You're in a very high productivity zone right now. And things have been ironed out with your, your personal life right now that has given you a peace a certain type of peace of mind that gives you the ability to really focus on what you find important at this stage of your life right now. Relationships mm -hmm. are important to you, of course, as is quality of life and living and being the best version of yourself, all those kind of things. But then you also have these other sides to yourself that I think are starting to come through for yourself, like the confidence and the, and the enjoyment of knowing what you've accomplished and what you're doing. And I feel like this book to me represents to you something you had to get out of the way 
to get to the next path of where you're going. Like this is going under your under you, right? You're gonna have this done, and then but you're also you have so much more shared, so much more to share stuff. Yeah. Your story is not done yet. You're not slowing down. And I feel like 2022 is gonna be your year that you're. It's gonna be one of your pinnacle years. I feel from my personal. Experience. I feel like yeah. you set stuff up that 2022, 2023, 2024. When I say pinnacle years, I feel like it's a three year cycle for you. I feel like going from 2022 to 2025, actually, you're going to find a lot of things that you're going to be able to enjoy to do that you haven't done in quite some time. I I have felt that. It's like, you know, I'm 62 and I'm just now coming into my prime. You know know what? I'm 45. You know, we're in different chapters of our book of ourselves. But when you think about where we're headed and what we're doing and the knowledge we have within ourselves, I think the sky is a limit and you can jump out of an airplane at 82, right? It doesn't matter. (laughs) You can I've never jumped out of an airplane yet, so... That, that'll that'll be something that I may do someday. Out to California, I'll take you out to Lodi. <laughs> Wait, Lodi? I'm from Lodi, New Jersey. <laughs> no, Lodi, Lodi, California. It's We've heard of Lodi, California. It's always been a joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Stuck in Lodi, the experience. Yeah. yeah, right, 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 right. Wow. Well, it's been really a pleasure. I I've enjoyed. Know. I've enjoyed so much talking to you today, and I would love to have you come back on and share any other anecdotes or stories from your book. If you ever have the interest, I would love to have just in general, just teaching people how to be happy, teaching people how to live in their, in their power. And yeah. um, I think that there's a lot of things that, you know, you have that a lot of people need to know about. You're, right. you're not, you're not slowing down. Don't think 62 for you is like uh, a precursor of you slowing down. I don't see you slowing down. I don't even see you retiring. Not that you don't want to, not that you I don't can't. think I have thought that. I don't, think, like, I don't think, I don't think you think that way. And guess what? Neither do I actually. Yeah, when you're in a yeah. spiritual realm and you do these amazing things in your life, there's no such thing as retirement. Retirement's when you transcend. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. I just want to thank Gerilyn for coming on the show today and sharing her amazing story with us. As a podcast host, I am a student of life. I enjoy having my show showcase amazing, notable individuals who have a true story to tell. And I believe that Gerilyn's story with Jungle Jean and everything she shared with us today about Jean Lidloff and the continuum concept and just all the things we talked about I want you to reflect on it. Get Jungle Gene. Check it out. Read the book. There's no way that you can't get something valuable from reading Jungle Gene. And, and, and looking at the stuff from a critical point of view, it, it goes to the heart and the essence of who we are. How were you raised? Were you raised in a loving family? Were you in a situation where you feel that you didn't have the right stability and child rearing in your life? If there's something that you question within yourself, Learn to laugh more at yourself. Learn to take life less seriously. Develop the right mindset for yourself so that you have the opportunity to look at things, not as much half empty, but more half full. I think positive thinking and having the opportunity of elevating yourself in many ways will help you. It'll help you get through any challenging thing. If it's trying to transport a canoe through the jungle and struggling through that, or if it means having to lose your job due to COVID and finding another position, whatever challenge awaits look at it with a smile embrace it and know that's going to get better it always does so check out gene's book jungle gene the uh, website and information for gene is going to be in our is, is, is included in our show notes and i just want to thank you for tuning into this episode as always stay positive because when you're positive anything's possible thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the social psychic radio show don't forget to join us for another episode next time If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. 
You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.